Welcome to Bayou City Fellowship. Why don't you turn to the person on your right and say, glad you're here. And turn to the person on your left and say, I hope this goes fast. So you know what time it is. He does. And he half cares. Hey, so glad you're here today. First Sunday of Advent. Uh, you know, I'm not that familiar. I'm like with Pastor Robbie today. I grew up a Southern Baptist kid, and so we didn't really do the liturgical calendar. In fact, I didn't hear about that uh, until much, much later in my life. And, and so Advent for me was just essentially these boxes that my mom would break out in the Christmas season. There were cardboard towers with numbers 1 to 25 in there. And starting in December, every morning we would go to the cardboard tower and pull out the box appropriately labeled for the day, and there would be a little treat inside of it. Sometimes it would be a piece of candy. Uh, sometimes it, it would be uh, an eraser. And then you could tell when my mom had forgotten to supply up for that week because it would be money. Uh, that's, uh, that's how we knew uh, that uh, well, it was going to be a good day when we woke up to money. That was really my only connection to Advent. But that's what Advent is. And ad- Advent is the counting towards. Uh, literally, it's a noun that means the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. So Advent is a countdown or a count up to December 25th. Now, I don't know if you've ever really asked yourself, you know, why do we celebrate Christmas on December 25th? Uh, I think most of us know that's not actually the time when Jesus was born. We don't have really a a close uh, guess of when he was born. A lot of scholars believe it was actually more in the springtime, more in the April, May uh, part of the calendar. But why do we celebrate on December 25th? It was a pretty interesting story. Because, uh, you know, Jesus was born into the Roman Empire and the Romans worshipped not one God, but a lot of different gods. And one of the gods they worshipped was the God of the sun, the sun God. And they would celebrate him uh, during the winter solstice, which was on December 25th. So on December 25th, they would come around and worship the God of the sun. Well, as Christianity began to spread through the Roman Empire, uh, 100, 200, 300 years after Jesus was uh, born, uh, lived uh, died and resurrected, they said, well, let's not celebrate the sun God. Let's celebrate the sun of righteousness on December 25th. And so December 25th, which had been previously committed to the God of the sun, was now committed to the son of righteousness, Jesus himself. And as a part of that celebration, they would have mass together. And it became known as Christ mass on December 25th. And you jam those two words together and we get Christmas. And Advent is the leading up, it is the countdown to the arrival of Jesus that we celebrate on December 25th. And so the first word for this first Sunday of Advent is expectation. And here's the main idea for today, if you wanted to write it down. Advent tells us we can expect God to fulfill His promises. My goal for us today is to go to the Word of God and to fit the birth of Jesus in its appropriate context within the story of the people of God. I brought a timeline with me. You can see it on the screens 
here. The Bible tells a story. Sometimes it doesn't feel like that, and that's definitely not how most of us treat it. In fact, we kind of treat it as part one and part two. And part one, for us, most of us, the Old Testament, we kind of skip over it. It's weird. There are a few stories that we cling to, David and Goliath, Noah and the ark, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the fiery furnace. There are a few stories that we cling to, but most of for most of us, the, the first half is really kind of a mystery, and we just skip to the second half that feels more familiar. But we do ourselves a disservice because when we skip over the first half of the Bible, we're really taking a lot of teeth out of the second half of the Bible because everything that happens in the back half is connected to the front half, and it's connected by the story that you can see on the screen in front of you that starts with creation and quickly after creation was the fall of mankind where sin enters the world. Adam and Eve eat from the, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're pushed out of the garden because of sin. Um, and then Abraham is a significant character uh, in the story of the people of God and then quickly followed by uh, a, a sojourn in Egypt and then the Exodus. You, you've seen the movie, the Ten Commandments. Uh, then God makes a promise to Moses and the people of Israel and then He makes a promise to King David, and then David's kingdom eventually splits uh, in the hands of David's descendants, and then there's an exile, and then Jesus' birth. And I want to lead us to Jesus' birth today by following along the story of the Old Testament so that we see it in its appropriate context and realize the magnitude and the intentionality of the arrival of Jesus. So let's start with Abraham. Genesis Chapter 11. What we're going to see today is that there is a cycle that the people of God lived in. Where God would make a covenant of relationship. He would make a bond with his people And then that bond would be undermined by the brokenness of humanity. So this is the cycle, the circle that the people of God lived in. God had made a promise. There were commitments both from him and from then. And then the commitments would be undermined by the brokenness of sinful humanity. So let's look at his promise to Abraham. Genesis chapter Uh, 11 verses 31 through 32 introduces us to Abram, uh, also known as Abraham. And then look at God's promise in chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So God's promise to Abram, if you will follow me, if you'll obey me, uh, then I'm going to do something great with your life. Uh, I'm going to bless the whole world through your line of descendants. Verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. That's his nephew. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions that he had accumulated, and the people he had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. So God makes a promise, follow me, I'm going to bless the whole world through you, and then Abram does. Now what happens is Abram begins to have not descendants, plural, but one descendant, One child named Isaac. 
And then Isaac has an heir named Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, which eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those sons' names is Joseph. And Joseph was the favored child of Jacob, his father, which made all of his brothers jealous. In fact, they were so jealous that some of the brothers were like, let's kill him. Uh, We hate him. We might as well murder him. But then one of them spoke up and said, hey, maybe let's not murder our brother. Let's compromise. Let's just sell him into slavery. And that's what they do. They see a slave train coming through, and they literally sell their brother into slavery slavery, cover up the whole thing by making it look like Joseph had been eaten by wild animals out in the desert. Joseph ends up in Egypt as a slave and then ends up in prison. In rock bottom, in prison, God takes him, lifts him up to the second most powerful man in Egypt. There was the Pharaoh king of Egypt and then there was Joseph. And at the time there was nobody more powerful than Egypt. So God took Joseph from rock bottom, from prison, all the way to be the most second Uh, the second most powerful man in the entire world. Now, meanwhile, while Joseph is being elevated, there's a famine back in the land of Joseph's brothers and father. And so they head to Egypt where there was food. They're reunited with Joseph, and they settle there in the land of Egypt with their brother Joseph. A few generations pass, and we get to Exodus chapter 1. Verse 8, a new king who had not known Joseph came to power in Egypt. So now there's been some generations and the memory of Joseph being at rock bottom in prison, being elevated to the second most powerful man uh, in Egypt. They've forgotten his story. They've forgotten all the good that he did for the people of Egypt. Now he's just got all these descendants and relatives living there. Verse 9, he said to his people, this is the king of Egypt, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we are. Let us deal shrewdly with them, otherwise they will multiply further. And if war breaks out, they may join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. So the king of Egypt is scared that the Israelites are going to unite against him. So what does he do? Verse 11. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them and with, uh, with forced Labor. So they turned them into slaves. Verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one who was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she may live. So it wasn't enough that he put the Israelites into slavery because he was scared. He's like, let's actually trim their numbers. Let's prevent them from multiplying. So again, they don't unite against us. And he goes to the Hebrew, the Israelite midwives and says, if the uh, you're helping deliver, and the baby comes out a girl, that's fine. If it comes out a boy, I want you to murder that little boy. Verse 17, the Hebrew midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them, and they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this and let the boys live? The Hebrew midwives said to Pharaoh, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before a midwife can get to them. What they said is the Hebrew women give birth to babies really fast. They give birth on the car ride to the hospital. They don't actually wait to the hospital. Verse 20, so God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied and became very numerous. Since the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So Pharaoh then commanded all of his people, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every daughter live. So he took it out of the hands of the midwives and he just says, listen, if you see a Hebrew baby boy, kill it, throw it into the river. So again, we're in this cycle. 
God has made a promise to Abraham. He said, I'm going to make your descendants, Genesis chapter 15, like the stars in the sky and as numerous as the sand on the seashore. But within a few generations, they're under threat of the brokenness of humanity. The king of Egypt is terrified of them. So what does he do? He persecutes them. He oppresses them. He pushes them into slavery. He begins to kill their children. This is the cycle of the Old Testament. The bond of relationship between God and man under the threat of humanity. So eventually the Israelites, they get tired of that slavery. They begin to cry out to God. Rescue us, help us, save us. And that's what God does. He picks out Moses. Moses comes with the power of God, performing plagues, performing miracles. Eventually, Pharaoh lets the Israelites go and they live out in the desert with God. And they're out in the desert with God in the shadow of Mount Sinai. What happens? God, again, covenants himself to not just one person, Abraham, but to an entire people through Moses, through his entire, uh, entire nation, Uh, This is what it says in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. Now, if you will listen to me, this is God speaking to the Israelites, and carefully keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. So here's the commitment. Here's the bond between God and man. He says to the Israelites, you'll be my special people. I own the whole earth. Everyone on earth is mine, but you're going to be unique. You're going to be my kingdom of priests. You're going to be my holy nation. There's the promise. We see the, the, the ceremony of the covenant in Exodus chapter 24, if you want to turn there. So this is the official ceremony of that promise God made to his people. Verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the commands of the Lord and all the ordinances. And then all the people responded with a single voice, we will do everything that the Lord has commanded. So this is their commitment. God has committed his presence to them. God has committed his provision to them. God has committed that they have a promised land, a land just to call their own, waiting on them on the other side of the desert. And their requirement is that they would follow the law of God. And what do they say? We will do it. We'll do it. Moses makes these these sacrifices and he takes some of the blood of the sacrifice and he actually sprinkles it on the Israelites as a sign that this covenant has been made. This ceremony has made it official. But then with just a few generations, look what happens. Judges chapter 2. God does settle them into the promised land. They begin to take ownership of it. Moses' replacement, Joshua, passes away. Verse 8, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the territory of his inheritance. And look what it says at the end of verse 10. After them, another generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the works he had done for Israel. So in the same way that the king of Egypt forgot the works of Joseph promoted from the prison all the way to the top, God's own people forgot the great works of God, how he delivered them through plagues, through miracles, through signs and wonders out of slavery, how he provided for them in the desert, in the wilderness by bringing them manna in the morning, bread in the morning, and flying in flocks of quail at night that would just die right in front of their tents so they could eat meat 
every single night. They had forgotten that God had led uh, their forefathers, their fathers and grandfathers and grandmothers and mothers through the desert with a, a fire, of, a, 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 fire a, a pillar of fire and a cloud uh, in the daytime. They had forgotten all those works. And then look what happens, verse 11. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. And they worshiped the Baals, those are the false gods of the Canaanites, and abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They went out after other gods from the surrounding peoples and bowed down to them. They infuriated the Lord, for they abandoned him and worshiped Baal and the Ashtoreths. So they had forgotten all that God had done in the lives of their grandfathers and fathers and grandmothers and mothers. And they began to worship these false gods of their Canaanite neighbors. It says in verse 15, Whenever the Israelites went out, the Lord was against them and brought disaster on them just as he had promised and sworn to them, so they suffered greatly. But even in the midst of the suffering, look, there's the grace of God. And the Lord raised up judges who saved them from the power of their marauders. But they did not listen to their judges. Instead, they prostituted themselves with other gods, bowing down to them. They quickly turned from the way of their fathers who had walked in the obedience to the Lord's commands. They did not do as their fathers had done. Again, we're in this cycle. God makes a promise to his people through Moses. You're going to be my people. You're going to be my kingdom of priests. You're going to be my holy nation. Just obey. Just worship me. And with just in a few generations, they've actually stopped worshiping God. And they've started to worship these idols. We're in this cycle. God makes a bond. And it's under threat by the hum- brokenness of humanity. So they don't listen to these judges. The judges kind of pass through year after year. The last and greatest of these judges is a man named Samuel. Samuel was more than just a judge. He was a prophet to God's people. He was a priest to God's people. He was a leader of God's people. But eventually the Israelites said, you know what? We look at all of our neighbors and they all have kings. And their kings sit on big thrones and their kings have great kingdoms and their kings march in grand parades. We don't have a king. We have Samuel and he's fine, but we want a king. We want to be honored among the nations uh, and we would be honored if we had a king. And so they beg God for a king. And so God, even though he doesn't uh, want them to, and even though he warns them against it, he gives them what they want. He gives them a king, Saul, and Saul is eventually uh, replaced by David. And look at the promise that God makes to David, a man after his own heart. Second Samuel chapter 7. This is God's promise to David. Verse 16, we'll just skip to the end for time's sake. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. So in the context of this long conversation with David, this is the promise God makes. Listen, I love you so much and I look with favor on your life so much that I promise that you will have a descendant on the throne of Israel forever and ever and ever. David is eventually replaced by his son Solomon and Solomon started out amazing. God said to Solomon, listen, ask For whatever you want, blank check. Can you imagine God saying to you, blank check. Whatever you want, you get the automatic yes. And we would ask for money. We would ask for power. We would ask for security. What does Solomon ask for? Solomon asked for wisdom. 
And God was so pleased by his request. He said, I'm going to give you wisdom. I'm going to make you the wisest man on the planet. And I'm going to give you all this other stuff that you could have asked for. I'm going to give you wealth. I'm going to give you influence. I'm going to give you power. And Solomon started out amazing, but he had an incredible weakness for women. In fact, Solomon in his lifetime had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He had 1,000 women to make happy. Men, you can't make the one woman next to you happy. Imagine how difficult Solomon's life was. But man, he had a taste and a weakness for women, especially exotic foreign women. And then he eventually had a taste for their, their exotic and foreign gods. And this is what happens in 1 Kings chapter 11. It says in verse 9, The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. He had commanded him about this so that he would not follow other gods, but Solomon did not do what the Lord had commanded. Then the Lord said to Solomon, Since you have done this and did not keep my covenant and my statutes which I commanded you, I will tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. However, I will not do it during your lifetime because of your father David. I will tear it out of your son's hand. Imagine, parents, your children suffering your consequences. I will tear it out of your son's hand, verse 13. Yet I will not tear the entire kingdom away from him. I will give one tribe to your son because of my servant David and because of Jerusalem that I chose. So God says to Solomon, listen, I had made a promise to your father that one of his descendants would always be on the throne, but you and your brokenness have undermined that promise. You and your brokenness have not followed through on the commitment. Therefore, I'm going to rip the kingdom out of not your hands, but out of your son's hands. And that's eventually what happens. Solomon is replaced by his son and turmoil happens. The nation of Israel is split into two. The northern half keeps the name Israel and it begins to be led by somebody not of the line of David. Uh, Solomon's son remains king over the southern half. Just one tribe, the tribe of Judah, there where Jerusalem was. And for the rest of the Old Testament, there is now two nations. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And they begin to be led by wicked, wicked, wicked kings. And even in God's grace, he would send prophets and he would remind God's people and he would remind these kings, listen, stop worshiping these false gods. Turn your heart back to God. Obey the law of God. And they just wouldn't listen. They wouldn't listen. They wouldn't listen. They wouldn't listen. And finally, God raises up two nations, Babylon and Assyria. And Babylonians come and they lay waste to the southern half, Judah. And the Assyrians come from the north and they lay waste to the northern kingdom, Israel. And they begin this time known as the exile. And the people of God are now disconnected from the promised land of God. They're disconnected from the presence of God, the temple in Jerusalem. And they believe that they're disconnected from the favor of God. Again, in this cycle of God's bond and relationship being threatened by the brokenness of humanity. So God's people living in this exile, living in Babylon, living in Assyria, broken and disconnected. But still God in his grace 
begins to send the prophets. And they give messages of light in the midst of the darkness. Messages like from the prophet Isaiah. When he says in chapter 7. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive. Have a son and name him Emmanuel. Messages like chapter 9. Verse 6, for a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. God's people stuck in the cycle of humanity's brokenness, continually undermining the promise of God. But the advent, the arrival of Jesus tells us we can expect God to fulfill his promises no matter what. Because these prophecies turn into reality. Matthew chapter 1 verse 18, the birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. That after his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because of what has been conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. And when Joseph got up from sleeping, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not know her intimately until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. Jesus is born. Advent, the arrival, breaks the cycle. A few applications and then we'll head home. Number one, hold your expectation through the threat of the world's brokenness. You can expect God to keep his promise. So hold your expectation through the threat of the world's brokenness. In the middle of Abraham's covenant comes the king of Egypt. Comes the slavery. Comes the threat of death by the murder of those little boys. Listen, some of us are looking out and we're saying, looking at the world and we're asking ourselves right now, is God really going to come through? Is God really going to protect us? Is God really looking out for us? Because we look out into the world and there are a lot of kings of Egypt. ISIS is the king of Egypt. Boko Haram, king of Egypt. Depending on what day in the news cycle it is, sometimes it sounds like Russia is, or China is, or the economy is. Whatever it is that's causing us fear, and in that fear we look and say, God, are you faithful? God, are you going to come through? God, are you going to protect us? God, are you looking out for us? God, are you securing a future for us? There will always be a king of Egypt. So if you and I are like, man, I just hope this one thing goes away. 
Because if we can just get this one thing to go away, then there'll be peace on earth. Listen, there will not be peace on earth until Jesus is on earth. One king of Egypt replaces the next king of Egypt. We will always be under the threat of the brokenness of humanity. But Advent tells us that the cycle has been broken. So just because there is a threat does not mean we are threatened. Just because there are a lot of giants in your land, just because there are a lot of things occupying territory in your life that seems like it's going to prevent the promises of God by becoming a reality in your life doesn't mean that God won't come through. Advent tells us that the cycle is broken. Advent tells us we can expect God to fulfill his promises. But think about if you're Abraham. Abraham gets this grand promise this amazing covenant. If you will leave your land and follow me, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. Imagine getting that promise. Imagine if God just said, hey, everybody's filing out of the, the room today. I just want to have a, a, a knee-to-knee, eye-to-eye conversation with you. Just pull up a chair and God himself just right there in front of you. And he said, listen, one day everyone on, in the world is going to be touched by you. Out of your life, are going to be the ripples of my grace to the entire planet. You'd be like, sign me up. I want to be a part of that. I want my life to matter for the things that really mean something. Sign me up. That's what Abraham did. He said, sign me up. You called me. I'll obey. Sign me up. His descendants were going to be as numerous As the sand on the shore, you know how many descendants he had when he died? One and a half. An illegitimate son and then the son of promise, Isaac. Now, if Abraham is looking at his life with a close-up camera, a zoomed-in lens, he says, God, you didn't fulfill your promise. You told me that I was going to have grandkids times grandkids. And I just, I just have this one son that you've set apart. But if he zoomed out, if he could use a wide-angle lens instead of the narrow lens, the arrival came and the whole world has been blessed by Jesus, a son of Abraham. A couple of weeks ago, Jackson was playing out in the street and I was out there sitting and he rides his bicycle up and he says, Dad, I need a new bicycle. And I was like, why do you need a new bicycle? He's like, well, this one's too small. And, and I began to look and, you know, we bought this bicycle for him when he was like five and now he's nine. So he's like doubled in size, but his bicycle has remained the same size. So he looks like one of those clowns riding the tiny little bike. And, you know, he's, he, the impression I was getting was, he's like, I'm kind of embarrassed to be riding this thing. I look like a weirdo out here. I, I need a new bike. And you know, I know Christmas is coming. And so in my mind, I'm already on Amazon.com ordering it. And I want to try to order one that's all put together so I don't have to, on Christmas Eve, be, you know, breaking out the toolbox. But I already got it bought in my mind. Now, don't tell him. He's not in here today. But don't tell him. Don't let it slip. But uh, there's going to be a bicycle under the tree for that guy. But if we go home today and he raises up the garage door, no bike. And if he's just looking at his life in 
close-up snapshots. I look like an unfaithful dad. I look like I don't care. I look like I've not heard him. I look like maybe I'm not going to come through for him. But if I could just get him to zoom out, if he can just know, hey, Christmas is coming, that this is just this one day, it's just one day. It's not the whole picture. If I can get him to zoom out, there's going to be a happy ending to this story. And some of you are looking at God and you're like, God, you are not good. You say that you are good, but you are not good because look what happened today and look what happened this week and look what's happened this month. Some of you are even like, look what's happened this year. 2015 was awful. That's what you're saying. And God doesn't look like he's faithful. That's what Abraham could have said. But can you just zoom out? Some of us are going to have to zoom out over our entire life to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Some of us are going to die in a dark, dark tunnel. And we may be tempted to go to our dying breath saying, God, you were not faithful to me. God, you did not come through for me. And we're going to step into eternity. And the camera is going to go panorama. And you're going to see the light woven in the midst of the darkness. You're going to see that your darkness was just a speck in the story of God's people. Just because we can't see the faithfulness of God does not mean today that God is not faithful. Just may need to back that lens up a little bit. So hold your expectation that God will fulfill his promise even under the threat of all of the brokenness around us. The second application, hold your expectation through the threat of sinful distraction. What undermined God's covenant, God's promise to Moses and the Israelites wasn't from outside. It wasn't a king of Egypt. It was their own failure to remain faithful. They got distracted by all the gods of the Canaanite neighbors. Listen, distraction is going to come. Distraction comes to us and leads us to a place of unfaithfulness. You ever been in this situation? I've been in this situation many times in my life. It's like you're in a great rhythm of reading the scripture every day and it's life and it's just awesome and you're having a great time, but then there's a really busy day or you're really tired and you're like, man, I'm not gonna get it today. I'll get it tomorrow. And then, you know, two weeks later, you're like, oh my gosh, I I don't even know where my Bible is. Or maybe you've been in a rhythm of prayer and things are really going well, and and, but you're super tired that night and, and that day and you're like, I'll do it tonight right before I go to bed. And then it turns out you didn't get less tired as the day ended you got more tired and you went to sleep and then a month later you're like I'm not I'm not sure outside of my meal time that I've actually had a real conversation with God distraction comes so easily to us we get sidetracked so easily worry is a distraction so we have three kids now Jackson's nine Annabeth is six and Willa is zero years old. She was born six weeks ago, so she's zero. For some reason, when I just had two kids, I wasn't concerned about what their college plans were, but now I got three and I'm like, holy cow, I got to figure out how to send all these kids to college. And so I was doing research the other night, just two nights ago, sitting on the, in the chair, Amanda's on the couch. We're talking about what we're going to do. And, and I'm looking online and online, there's a calculator of how much it's going to cost to send your kids to college when it's their time. I encourage you not to seek it out because it's, it's totally depressing. So just Jackson's nine. He's going to be, uh, you know, 18 in nine years. And that seems like a long time. It's not actually that long time. So I put his age into the calculator. It's going to cost me over $100,000 to send him to school when it's time. I'm like, poor guy. He better learn a trade. 
and then just one, that's just one. What about when Annabeth, who's six, who's more years, and then Willa, who's zero? Like, we put a huge gap in those, in between the second and third. Like, I wasn't thinking about college funds when we were putting that gap in there. We're just going to have to choose one of them, the one we think is going to succeed the most, and just (laughs) invest in that one. But immediately I read that number, and it's anxiety all over me. And in the middle of that anxiety and that worry, Sometimes it's tempting to look and say, God, are you going to be faithful? Sometimes God doesn't look as faithful and able to fulfill his promises when I'm stressed out, when I'm distracted. I mean, remember the story of the prodigal son? Every prodigal in here knows the story of of the prodigal son. You remember when he takes his inheritance, rips it out of the hands of his father. It says he goes off and he lives in a faraway country and he just lives it up. He has a ton of friends. He pays for all of their booze, all of their parties, and life was great. And every prodigal in here knows in that moment when you're living it up far away from your father, you know that that prodigal in the midst of his orgy was not going, hey, pause on this, time out on this. I just want to tell you about how great my dad was. I want to tell you about how great my dad is. He's still alive. He's wonderful. He's cared for me all the days of my life. He's kind. He's generous. He looked after my brother and I. He gave us a great place to live. We had the biggest house in our part of town. You know that he was not singing the praises of his father while he was living it up in that faraway country, spending all that inheritance on his own flesh. It wasn't until the party ran out that he remembered how good his father was. Because that's what happens when we get distracted. That's why when we lose our faithfulness through distraction and we go get tempted with this thing, we get distracted with this thing, it causes us to look at God and we don't tell the stories of God's goodness. In that season, we end up telling the stories of how God just put shackles on us. We tell the stories of how God, he didn't come through for us. We tell the stories of how the church hurt us. We tell the stories of how, you know, my Christian mom and dad, they were harsh and, and, and they, didn't, they wouldn't love well. And they didn't treat me right and they didn't, they didn't understand who I was. We tell those stories when we're living it up in the faraway country. It's not until we reach rock bottom that we remember, well, maybe God was a little bit more faithful than I had given him credit for. So we got to hold our expectation. We have to remember that God will be faithful to fulfill his promises under the threat of our distraction. And the last thing, hold your expectation through the threat of your own temptation. What undermined God's promise to David was Solomon's weakness for women. And there were devastating consequences. All of us this week, we're going to be tempted to lie We're going to be tempted to deposit disparaging remarks into the atmosphere about people that we love and care about. We're going to be tempted to cheat. We're going to be tempted to lust. We're going to be tempted to be lazy. We're going to be tempted to gluttony. We're going to be tempted with addiction. And a bunch of us are going to fail. I mean, we always talk about temptation at church. Put a little happy bow on the end of it. The reality is, is that most of us this week are going to be tempted and we're going to give in. It's not going to be temptation. It's going to be, I was tempted and then I was just in it. And we're going to be in the cycle of oops 
I'll never do it again. Oops, I did it again. I'll never do it again. Oops. It's the reality. But Advent, the arrival of Jesus tells us that even our own brokenness cannot undermine God's ability to keep his promises. I love what Jesus said. Jesus said, listen, once you're in my hand, there's not one thing that can pull you out. Not even you. Once you're into the hand of Jesus, you don't slip out through the cracks. Because somebody in here is going, well, I'm in the hand of Jesus. I mean, I'm a Christian, I believe. But if he knew what I had done, if he knew what I was doing, then he, then he would drop me out. Then other people are in here and they're like, yeah, that's right, I'm in the hand of Jesus because I am super righteous. But here's the good news for all of us today. Advent tells us it's not about you. Whether you are awful or you are wonderful, whether you are a disaster today or you are beautiful and put together, whether you actually are the person that we all think you are or you are not the person that we all think you are, it doesn't matter. Once you're in the hand of Jesus, you are kept there because of Jesus. You are kept there not because you stay there. You are kept there because God is the kind of God who keeps his word no matter whether you keep your word or not. See, that's the difference between the first part of the Bible and the second part of the Bible. In the first half of the Bible, it's all about God's promise and my ability to keep my promise to God. And that cycle never works out. It's always, oops, I'll never do it again. Oops, I did it again. I'll never do it again. Oops, I did it again. I'll never do it again. That's the cycle that we all live in. But Advent comes and shatters the cycle and says, once you're in the hand of Jesus, you are in there to the end because he has broken that cycle and you are glued to God, not by your will, not by your ability. You are glued to God by the blood of Jesus. And that is an adhesive that never comes undone. Whether you are awesome or you are awful, once you are glued to him, it's forever. You're like, well, I'm a bad person and I'm not good. It doesn't, who cares? It's not about you. Because he's the kind of God that keeps his promises. And he promised that he would be with you. He promised that you'd be more than just a number. He promised Abraham, our spiritual father, that through him, the whole world would be blessed and his descendants would be like the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. And here we are today. He promised Moses and the Israelites that his presence would be with them. That they'd have a purpose, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And here we are today. He promised David that there would be a king that came from his line and lineage on the throne of Israel forever and ever and ever. Jesus is the king of every king and the Lord of every Lord, a son of David born into the city of David. Advent, the arrival, tells us that God keeps 
His promises. You know, we live in a world where I think most of us just assume people are lying to us all the time. I mean, would it be shocking if your favorite political candidate, whoever you're going to vote for, don't say it out loud, let's not get into that uh, uh, today. But whoever your favorite political candidate is today, whoever you'd cast your vote for, would you be shocked if it was revealed that turns out they were just telling you what you wanted to hear? No, I just just assume that they're only telling me what I want to hear. I assume that most of them, even the best of them, in my opinion, your opinion, are going to do nothing of what they're telling us they're going to do. They're just telling us that so that they will get into the office and then they'll just figure it out from there. I'd love if somebody was honest and just say, hey, I'm just trying to get elected and we'll figure it out after I get into the White House. I might vote for that person. I mean, they'd probably be a disaster, but at least it'd be a different strategy of pretending that they're going to do all these things. We just live in a culture where we just expect and are not shocked when people lie to us. Black Friday was on Friday. You know, now there's the Black Thursday and uh, Black Friday and Black Saturday and all these ads come in. And I remember uh, a couple of years ago, there was a great ad in Macy's. And uh, I was like, oh my gosh, that's a great present. I can get that from my brother-in-law and uh, I'm going to get it. And it was like, you know, almost free essentially. And, and so I show up at four in the morning. And I'm like, here, here it is. I want to buy this thing. And they ring it up full price. I'm like, hey, it's four in the morning. I don't get out of bed for full price at four in the morning. I could have ordered this on the internet from my bed. I'm a smart person. You said in the ad that it was going to be almost free, and that's why I'm here. And they were like, well, you actually had to bring in that coupon from that ad. Do you have the ad? And I'm like, no, the ad had turkey gravy all over it. I don't just carry around, you know, turkey gravy stained ads all the time. Just give it to me for free. That's why I'm here. I can't do it. You should have read the fine print. Just assume people are, are just lying to us essentially. Willa as I mentioned is only six weeks old and so she and I like to have parties in the middle of the night because that's when she's pretty alert and Amanda and I have a good rotation going on and most of the time right now my rotation is from like four in the morning to six and let me tell you at four in the morning are some great infomercials. Great infomercials. If you're not sure what to get uh, your friends and family today I, I know what to get them. I know there's some great vacuum sweepers out there. There's a lot of great stuff. Uh, the thing I'm most intrigued about right now is that you can buy property in Belize at a resort. It's called Buy Belize. It, it, I'm praying about it right now, actually. I can't send my kids to college, but these infomercials are so great uh, that uh, I'm thinking about buying property. And if you've ever watched an infomercial like that, I mean, they make it sound like it's the simplest thing. Like, all I got to do is get on an airplane and go to Belize and sign a, a contract and just give very little money, like an, an, a reasonably good deal. And then I'll come home being an owner in Belize. But then at the end, there's all that really quick, small print just flying all over the place. You know what I'm talking about? And I'm sure, listen, if you own property in Belize, let me know if this is a real thing or not. But I'm assuming it's a scam. I'm assuming that in that fine print, it says United States citizens actually can't purchase and own land in Belize. I think that's the way that these, these things technically work out. And, and I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised because we just assume people are lying to us. So a lot of us today, we're hearing, man, Advent tells us we can expect God to keep his promises. And you're like, whatever, whatever. But he will keep his word. Listen, I'm not a spokesman because God doesn't need a spokesman. He can speak directly to you. And what I'm asking God today is for those of us who are skeptical that he is gonna keep his word, that he would vindicate his own name. He doesn't need me to defend it. He doesn't need me to outline his resume. He is more than capable 
of speaking for himself and what we are going to see in this lifetime or the next is he is a God who always keeps his word. And Advent tells us that. Let's pray. God, we bless you. We bless you from this place. We bless you from this place. We do ask that you would speak Speak loud. Show us your faithfulness. Even this week, I pray that the lens would get zoomed out for a lot of us. We would see your hand working even in the midst of our darkness. That you knew the way even though we couldn't see the way. So we trust you, God. We thank you for the arrival of your one and only son. In Jesus' name we pray.